Oh man, you're the one who never leaves the one behind. What? What? Just those words are just so true of our Lord, and, and uh, it's a phenomenal song and a phenomenal chance to come and, and worship once again. Uh, coming, I guess I'm kind of, we're kind of coming into your world. Uh, we look forward to the day y'all could kind of come back here, hopefully. Uh, it won't be much longer. Each Sunday gets us a little bit closer uh, to that time. If you're joining us for the first time, if you're a guest, maybe you just kind of started watching us. Um, you don't know who I am. I'm the pastor. I'm David. It's, it's just a joy uh, to be able to be with you this morning and come and, and, and share a time of worship with you. I was a teenager in the 70s. And in the 70s, growing up, we listened to the really coolest movie, music ever. We listened to what's now called classic rock and roll. Some people say classic means old. No, classic just means it's better than yours. That's kind of how uh, my generation looks at it. Uh, to this day, I still listen on a, a Sirius XM satellite. I listen to classic rewind, and I listen to classic vinyl. But growing up in Texas, you didn't just listen to rock and roll. There were certain singers and songwriters you listened to uh, that were from our state. You listened to Chris Christopherson, you, uh, you, know, you listen to Jerry Jeff Walker, David Allen Cole, but especially you listen to two guys. You listen to Waylon Jennings and you listen to Willie Nelson, and they were just phenomenal in the music they put out. Um, to be honest, when Debbie and I were younger, I used to sing Good Hearted Woman to her. Uh, I don't sing it anymore, not because she's not still good hearted, I want to clarify, because she still is exceptionally good hearted but because she asked me not to sing. And so you can take that uh, for whatever it's worth. But Willie Nelson has some iconic songs. And one of his most iconic songs is On the Road Again. And I just love that song. And every time I hear that, I'm like, yeah, we need to get on the road. We need to get going. We need to go someplace. Debbie and I, we we love to get on the road. Whenever we go vacation, even if we fly into someplace, we'll rent a car and we'll just go traveling around and seeing the sights. I mean, I'm ready right now to be on the road. And with that in mind, I'm going to do the best I can for the next uh, month to take you on the road in a unique way. We're going to be in a series entitled On the Road with Elijah. Elijah was a 9th century BC prophet. He was the kind of the classic prophet of God. His story is found from 1 Kings 17 to 2 Kings chapter 2. And so we're going to be in a series of five messages. And today, we're going to be in 1 Kings 17. Um, I'll go through the passage. You didn't read it, parts of it at least. Uh, in a message entitled, On the Road to Zarephath. And, and if you wondered, how do you pronounce that word? Yeah, I pronounce it correctly. You know, just keep this in mind when it comes to the Old Testament. However I pronounce it, that's the way to pronounce it. It works every time uh, for me. And so here's the thing uh, I want you to see from the message today. And really, this will help you throughout the entire series. But here's the thing that I want you to see. There is only one God, Yahweh, the Lord, and he is always in control. There is only one God, Yahweh, the Lord, and he is in control. And I use the term Yahweh because in the Old Testament, uh, that's kind of the name of God. And going back to, to Moses in Exodus 3, and when he says, what name should I use? When people ask who, who sent me, uh, you, you say, Yahweh, I am who I am, Yahweh. And so that's, that's kind of the name that God gives to the people of Israel. And it's usually in the Old Testament translated Lord. And, and it's almost always capitalized, uh, with the, uh, the whole, all, every letter is capitalized, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. And so it's showing, he, he's the only one. 
and he is always in control. So what I thought I'd do, thought I'd do is kind of start this message in a series today, talking a little bit about conflict and chaos. And um, when, when you read the Old Testament, it seems like there's a lot of conflict and chaos. And, and, and if you're not a follower of Christ, you're watching today, but, but you're really not a Christian, or, or you just started going to church, you haven't been a Christian very long, the Old Testament can be really hard. Even, even for Christians, the Old Testament can be difficult. And, and, and so let me just spend a few minutes. I, I just want to spend some time uh, this morning setting this whole series up, talking about a few things that might help you, especially with the, with the Old Testament understanding. One of the things that I, that I say a lot is look at the Old Testament as a book that promises, a series of books that promise something. When you get to the New Testament, you're in a series of books that fulfill that. And when you look at the Old Testament, there's progression being made. It may not seem like it, you may not understand it. It can be repetitive. There's all different types of literature. But there's progress being made. You're moving towards something. And what you're moving towards is the understanding that a Messiah needs to come. Someone needs to come and bring salvation to humanity who has rejected God. If you go to the very beginning of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, the first three chapters basically tell us that God creates us, humans, to have a relationship with him and a relationship with other people. But sin enters that world. He gives us freedom. And in that freedom... Man has rejected God and sinned against God. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you just see the depth of the sinfulness of man. You just see how man keeps sinning and sinning over and over and over again. And then you come to the 12th chapter, and you're introduced to this guy named Abraham. Now, one of the great things about the Old Testament, let me just give you kind of a a simplistic way to help you is look at the Old Testament as the movement through several key people. Three main people come to light. The first is Abraham, found in Genesis 12. Abraham is the father of the covenant, not just the covenant of God with Israel, but God's covenant to bring salvation to us. To Abraham, God says, I will bless the whole world through you. He's going to bring a blessing. He's going to bring a, a savior to the world through Abraham. The second person, key person, is Moses. Moses is the great deliverer, the giver of the law. He takes God's people, the Israelites, delivers them out of Egypt and gives them what we call the Ten Commandments, which is God saying, look, if you're my follower, this is how you live. The third key person is David. He is the great king. All the kings of Israel and Judah are measured against David. David is the one to whom Christ looks as the example as what it means to be king. It is David who is the one that the Messiah is going to come like. In fact, at the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the root of David. These three giants of the Old Testament, giants of faith, through all their sin and all their failure, and they show all their sin, they move us along God's plan of salvation. There's also three other characters that become really important. There are a lot of people in the Bible that are important in the Old Testament. But three more that are sort of transitional characters. They transition from one time to the next. One of those guys is Joshua. He transitions from Moses to get the people into the promised land. So he becomes very important. Another transitional character is Samson, excuse me, Samuel. Samuel transitions the people from the time of the judges into the time of the kings, Saul and then David. But the third transitional character is Elijah. 
And Elijah transitions to people from the kings because the kings after David, after Solomon, start becoming sinful and worshipers of Baal. He transitions them towards the prophets. In other words, with Elijah, the prophets become the major figures in the life, especially the spiritual life of Israel. And that's why you end up getting, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the prophets. Elijah comes into the world in a time of great conflict and chaos. The conflict boils down to the people of Israel are being led into the worship of a false god, Baal, against the true god, Yahweh. There's this conflict. Elijah comes, and he enters that conflict with the king of Israel, Ahab, and the conflict becomes between the two of them. It is also a time of unbelievable chaos because the people are confused. Who do we worship? We worship Yahweh. We worship Baal. Elijah comes, and here's what we see about Elijah. Elijah's mission was to promote the glory and worship of Yahweh, the one true God, and to destroy a Baal worship. And it's just the way it is. He has come to promote the worship and the glory of just one God, the only God that exists, Yahweh, and to destroy the worship of Baal. And with that, we, we kind of come to 1 Kings 17. And we see Elijah enter the scene. And here's what 17, uh, 1 Kings 17 verse 1 says. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my Word. Now, this is a kind of strange way uh, for Elijah to enter into the scene. So let me just backtrack just a little bit to kind, of, to kind of get you caught up and to understand what's going on. After David was king, the great King David, there was Solomon. After Solomon, his son Rehoboam became king. And in Rehoboam's kingship, the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom always had someone who was from the, the bloodline of David as king. It was basically the land of Judah, and that's what it was called. The other tribes all went up to the northern kingdom, and they had a series of different kings. And throughout the history of the northern kingdom, which lasted uh, to about 722, they're, they're, they constantly worshipped something other than God the way he wanted to worship. When Jeroboam led them away from, and split the kingdom off from Rehoboam, and he led them away. Uh, and, and that was what God wanted. That part was fine. Instead of continuing to worship God properly, he began to lead the people into worshiping idols. Shortly after Jeroboam's death and his son reigned and that fell apart, there began this civil war. And in this conflict of civil war, a guy came to power. We see him in 1 Kings 16. His name is Omri. O-M-R-I, Omri becomes king about 855 B.C. and serves for about 12 years. His son will be Ahab. And, and from a political standpoint, you know, Omri did a good job. He, he, made the, he made the kingdom grow. He solidified the economics. But Omri was an evil man because he led the people away from worshiping the one true God to worshiping Baal. And I'll talk about Baal in a few moments. But the main thing that he did from the eyes of the author of Kings is he gave his son Ahab in marriage to a woman who was the daughter of the king of Tyre or Tyr. Uh, it's also called Sidon, Phoenicia. If you come across the term Phoenicians, Sidonians, Tyr, it's all the same place. He was the king of an era that worshipped Baal, and his daughter is known as Jezebel. Jezebel is probably the most evil woman 
in all of the Bible. I mean, she's just evil. I don't know that I've ever heard of anyone naming their daughter Jezebel. I know some guys who have called their mother-in-law Jezebel. That's a completely different thing, but that's just a nickname. I've never known anybody who would name their daughter that. Jezebel was wholeheartedly into the worship of Baal. I mean, she just gave herself to that. When she married Ahab, and Ahab became king in about 874, and he reigned for about 22 years, all the way down to about 853, it was her mission to not only worship Baal, but to destroy the worship of Yahweh. She wanted to destroy the prophets and the priests of the worship of the one true God. She wanted to remove completely the worship of God from the northern kingdom. Now, back in that time, in their minds, there were lots of different gods. Now, Israel knew there was only one God, Yahweh. You didn't get that. But everybody else thought there were lots of gods, and gods worshipped over regions. So wherever you lived, your God worshipped that, uh, reigned over that region, and you worshipped him. And so when countries would fight, it was also a battle between whose God was stronger. What Jezebel wanted to do was take her God, and not only take him from where he was worshipped in her home city, her hometown, her home country, but move him to be the God of the people of Israel. This was the conflict. Now, you have to understand the danger and the evil of Baal worship. The word Baal simply means Lord. There were lots of different people who worshipped lots of different Baals. And in all their religions, there's some things that are fundamentally the same. The worship of Baal is the worship of many different gods and goddesses, just like the Greeks did in mythology. It was what we call a fertility cult. Now, I'm assuming there are a lot of children watching, and so I'm not going to go into details about Baalism. But if you understand what the word fertile means and the concept of fertility, then you can kind of get to understand what was at the heart of Baal worship. Baal was the storm god, the god of the storms, the rain, the god of power, the god of war. His consort, his mistress, if I may use the term, was a woman named Asherah or Astarte. And she was the Mother Earth kind of goddess. He brought the rain, she grew the crops and the dirt. And Every year, and, and fertility cults are cyclical. They look at the cycle of the vegetation, the cycle of the world, you know, and it goes round and round. Every year there would be death, as we know, winter. And in the spring, Baal would come back to rule. And it was hoped that there would be a process of growing the crops. And so what became part of Baal worship were temples where there'd be temple prostitutes. And so men would go to the temple prostitutes and they would do the things you would do to help bring about the, the urging on the fertility of the land. So you can understand this is the exact opposite of what God would want. Not only that, but they would pray and make sacrifices to the storm god Baal. And if things weren't going well, this is what else they would do. They would take their children and sacrifice them to Baal. If the rains weren't coming, they would sacrifice a child. If they were losing at war, they were sacrificing a child. If winter lasted too long, they would sacrifice a child. It was a grotesque religion. This is why when you struggle with the Old Testament and you come where God is taking the people in the promised land and God says, destroy all the Canaanites. The reason he's saying destroy the Canaanites wasn't because he's a mean God. It's because they worship Baal and they weren't going to worship Yahweh. And they would infect Israel with this grotesque, ungodly way of worship to gods and goddesses they made up. And 1 Kings 16 says that Ahab built a temple and a place of worship for Jezebel to the God 
Baal. He was, he was the king of Israel. He was to worship Yahweh, and he's building a temple and an altar to worship Baal. For all you Star Wars fans, put it to you this way. Not only did Ahab go to the dark side, he was Darth Vader and Kylo Ren all rolled into one. I mean, that's who he was. And Elijah comes onto the scene. We don't know much about Elijah. He just shows up. He just rolls in. And he rolls up to Ahab. And he begins this whole battle with Ahab. And he says this. And the word Elijah, by the way, his name means my God is Lord. Elijah comes from the word Eli, you know, Elohim, which is God. And the word Yahweh, the Yah, which is Lord. And so you put it together, Elijah, my God is Lord. So when you name your children Elijah, that's where it comes from. And so here's what he says. He's speaking on behalf of Yahweh because the prophets spoke the mind of God. God spoke through the prophets. And so here's what he tells Ahab, the, God, the Lord, the God of Israel. Now notice how he references the Lord, Yahweh, our God, who's supposed to be your God. He is the God of Israel. Baal's not the God of Israel. Yahweh's the God of Israel. In fact, he's the only God that exists. He says this, it's not going to rain and there's going to be no dew for a long period of time. So understand, they worship Baal, who is the god of storms. And Elijah comes, and he says to Ahab, the king of Israel, who's supposed to worship Yahweh, he says, our God, Yahweh, speaks. You worship Baal, guess what, Haas? Ain't no rain coming for a long period of time. He says, not going to be any rain. And then he says this, and this is crazy, until I speak. Until Elijah says so. This is God saying this. You think Baal's powerful? Baal doesn't exist. You think the prophets and priests of Baal are powerful? And we're going to see more about them next week? Hang on, nothing. I'm going to speak through one guy. And when I'm ready for it to rain, I'll tell Elijah. And Elijah will just say the words. Elijah will speak when the rain is to come. <laughs> Not only is God powerful, he takes his prophet and speaks to him in power. I mean, this is just slapping Baalism all upside the head. And that's exactly what happens for three years. In a time of conflict and chaos, I'm going to see what Elijah did, because this is so important. Elijah encounters a major conflict in a time of chaos, all to demonstrate who is the one true God. He encounters conflict. In a time of chaos, to demonstrate, there is just one God, and he's going to show them who it is. Which brings me to the second thing I want to share with you. I'm going to talk to you from this passage about the Lord of life. Elijah is taken by God. He goes across the Jordan River, spends some time, the drought comes, and then we see in verse 8 and 9, we see the following. So here's what verse 8 says. Then the word of the Lord came to him, that is Elijah, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So when they're in the middle of the drought, God says, leave Israel. I want you to go to the land of the Sidonians, to the land of Phoenicians. I want you to go to the heart of Baal country. See, not only is this drought happening in Israel, it's happening in the heart of Baal country. And you're going to go to this area called Zarephath, and there'll be a widow there. And that widow probably actually is a worshiper of God at this point. And you're going to stay with her. And that's what he does. In fact, you know, he, he goes to the one. He asks her for water you know, and uh, in a drought. She gives it to him. Then he says, I'm hungry. Could you give me some bread? 
And this woman says, I don't have any bread hardly at all. I got a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. That's all we got. It's me and my son. I'm going to make us just enough bread to eat, and then we're going to die because we're doomed. And Elijah, being the prophet of God, says, you're not going to die. Just make me the bread. And then what happens, he says, and what occurs is that God will continue to provide flour and oil for you for out the drought. And so she does it, and she continues to get to eat from that point on, and Elijah just stays with her. And he stays probably on top of her house in a little shelter that was up here. And, and there's this a miracle occurs that they never went out of bread. They always have flour. They always have oil. Now, I know people struggle with miracles, and I get that. What's interesting is there's only really four times in the Bible, in the Old and Tune Testament, where there's really a lot of miracles. And they're, and they're connected with people. Now, miracles are just a supernatural breaking into the not common. Around Moses, God does a bunch of things that are miraculous. Around Elijah and his successor Elijah, God does the miraculous. And later on, we see in the New Testament, around Jesus, he does the miraculous, obviously. And then with the apostles, he does the miraculous. And, and, and as hard as it may be to, to understand miracles, if you believe in a God that can create something from nothing, which is miraculous, then believe in a God who can break into his creation and do things. He's going to do the miraculous through Elijah. In fact, the great miracle through Elijah he's about to do is what follows next. So beginning in verse 17, this, this is what we see. She said to him, my Lord, you swore to your maidservant by the Lord your God, saying, surely your son Solomon shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Wait, hang on. That ain't the right passage. Where in the world does that come from? Hang on. Through all our t- I'll take the full blame. Evidently, I gave them the wrong passage of Scripture. And when I looked through it earlier, it was wrong. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go old school, and I'm going to do what doesn't get done very often. I'm picking up my Bible. And I'm reading. So through all our technology, guess what happens? Somehow we made a mistake. It was all my fault. Somehow I gave the wrong passage of Scripture. Now, in verse 17, it says this. Huh, that's interesting. Now, it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, a man of God? You have come to bring uh, my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. And he said to her, give me your son. And she took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. He called to the Lord and said, my Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? And then he stressed himself upon the child three times and called the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child return to him. The Lord heard his voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord is in mouth is true. So what you have here is that the woman's son dies. He's a young kid and he dies. And she comes up to Elijah and says, well, the reason he's dead is because you're here and you brought my sin to fulfillment. See, the people back then believed that when bad things happened to them, it was always because of sin. Uh, you see it in John chapter 7. Jesus heals a man that is born blind. And the apostles say, whose sin was this, the result of his or his parents? He said, none. But so the Lord may be glorified. There was this mindset that everything that wrong happens in our life is because of some sin and God's punishing us. We see this today, by the way. This is not really a biblical concept. The, the idea of karma, which, which is tied to an Eastern system of the rising and the falling, of the, it's, it's a cyclical system just like paganism. 
is the idea that for every good, something bad must happen. And so Christians, the idea of karma is foreign to us. We need to understand we have a God of mercy who oftentimes deals with that which is bad with mercy and love. And so she says, this is because of my sin, what's going on? And so Elijah takes the boy, and he lays him on his bed, and he lays on top of him, and, and, and like we would do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, I mean, they didn't call it that, he just lays on him, and he breathes spirit into him, and he prays, and he prays this three times. And the God brings the boy back to life. And the woman says, now I know you're a prophet, and what you say is true, because you have brought my son back to life. Now, why is this important in this story? Because of this. Baal was a god to whom people sacrificed their children. If you wanted to get the attention of Baal, you killed your kids to get his attention. And God is a God who not only rejects the sacrifice of children, but God is a God of life. See, here's the thing. The power of God is ultimately on the side of life. Real power is the power over life and death. Baal didn't have that power, but God did. See, real power, true power, is the power over life and death. And that's what Elijah had. He had God's power to bring that life. And so in the midst of all this conflict, in the midst of all this chaos, what God demonstrates is that when you worship a God of the storm who was unable to end the drought, you worship a God who demands death. I am a God who controls everything at my word. And I am the God who gives life. With this in mind, there's basically three concepts from this passage that I want you to see that hopefully will carry over to what we're going to be doing in the next few weeks. The first is this. The conflict between the Lord and Baal is the conflict between the living and the not living, the real and the not real, the one and the none. I mean, it's a conflict it's really not a conflict at all because Baal doesn't exist. It's people rejecting God, choosing to create their own gods and goddesses who are in conflict with God. But God, God says, okay, and so here's this Baal. Here's the living one. Here is the not living one. Here is the real. Here is the not real. Here is the one. Here is the none. And God wins out every time. In the world we live in, we make up our own religions, we make up our philosophies, we make stuff up all the time in opposition to God. And we present it as an alternative that's viable to the worship of the one true God. And here we have this God who has worked through the history of the people of Israel. He worked through Abraham, he worked through Moses, he worked through David. He worked in their life. He worked through Joshua, he had worked through Samuel, he had worked in their life to get them to this point. And they were rejecting a real God who always took care of his people with his power and with life. To worship something a group of people made up in their minds. And he's having to demonstrate, you can't follow that which you make up. You cannot reject me. Because I am the only one who is living, I am the only one who is real, I am the only one. The second concept we see is this. God has power and is in control, but he does allow us the freedom to make decisions. God has power or is powerful and is in control, but he allows us freedom to make decisions. You see, he allowed Ahab to make a decision to reject him, and that's what Ahab did. He, he rejected him, and he led the people to reject God. But here's the thing. If you're going to reject God, he gives you freedom to do that. 
they're, you got to live with the consequences of that. See, we live in a culture now where we want to be able to live our own life. You know, we don't, we don't want Christianity. We don't want religions with rules and regulations. Let us do whatever we want. And then we do whatever we want. And when things happen to us and the inevitable consequences of rebelling against God happen, we say, how could a loving God let this happen? God just gave you the freedom to make your decisions. And guess what? Whatever you decide has consequences. You go to the right, it has consequences. You go to the left, it has consequences. Whatever direction you go, life has consequences. And we take that freedom and he gives it to us. Third concept is this. God's desire for us is to be in relationship with him, to have real life. That's what this whole thing is about. He's not just giving them over to the worship of Baal. If God didn't care, he'd say, yeah, you're done. Go worship Baal. No, God loves them. He cares for them. He wants them to be in relationship with him. Because in relationship with him, there is life. Jesus says, I came that you might have life to the fullest. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the resurrection and the life. For God so loved his son, so loved the world, he sent his only son, that he would ever believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God is always about life. Us having the fullness of life. So we come to the Lord of life. To the God who's always in control. In the midst of all this conflict and all this chaos, what we'll see over the next few weeks is God peels everything back through Elijah is Yahweh is the only Lord. He's the only one. And it's through him we find life. Even without the COVID-19 thing, we live in a world of conflict. We live in a world of chaos. And sometimes we just want someone to be in control of things. We want someone to come and give meaning to life. But we're not looking for just someone. We're looking for the one. And that one is God. And God in his plan, as I have shared for the last few months talking about Jesus, said, Jesus is the one I'm giving to you to give you life. Some of you today are really struggling. And your life seems out of control. Your life seems in conflict. Your life seems in chaos. I want to encourage you to turn to God. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't left you. You may think that, but he hasn't. Just look at the story of Elijah, he didn't abandon his people. He didn't leave his people. He came to say, I'm in control. I'm coming to give you life. And that control, that life comes from Jesus. And if you've never trusted Jesus to be your Savior, and I haven't talked about Jesus much, but if you've never trusted Jesus to be your Savior, like for the last four months, that's all I've been preaching about is Jesus. You need to give your life to Christ. You need to trust him to be your Savior. In a little bit, when they sing the song, there'll be a phone number up. And if you want to talk to someone about giving your life to Christ, text, respond to that number. And, and today, it'll be within a, a 30 or 40 minutes, someone will talk to you. But for all of us in the world we live in, understand it's, it's so easy to look at the world and see the chaos and the conflict and, and wonder where God is. God is always in control. We may not always see it. We may not always understand it. But he is the God who absolutely is in control of life. And so why don't we trust him? As a follower of Christ, keep trusting God. Don't stop trusting the one who not only has power, he is the one who gives you life. And right now, we really need that life. So Father, I thank you for your love. And I thank you for the fact you are in control. And we don't always understand it. 
And it always doesn't seem that way. But our world is in no more chaos or conflict than when Elijah stepped in and confronted Ahab. And if you are in control of that, if you give life in the midst of that mess, you do it today. So let us turn to you and trust you, depend upon you, and most importantly, trust Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.